My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey, Roach. How you doing, Justin? Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, any questions before we get started? Uh, so there's a few people out here. That's yeah. it, but let's try to get this done for as, as much as we can. All right, let's do it. Uh, all right, let's do it. Today our guest is calling from the California prison system. He is someone that I have spent a significant amount of time with over the last four or five years while I was incarcerated. He's one of the most talented and thoughtful young men that I've ever met in prison. Our guest today is Justin Chung. Justin was born in Seoul, South Korea. Family and friends of Justin growing up would find it very difficult to, to believe that he would ever end up in prison. I remember looking at Justin on the basketball court in Soledad one day and thinking, what is this clean-cut, humble kid doing in prison? Justin was born on December 21st, 1989. He's actually the youngest guest we've ever interviewed. He was sentenced to 82 years to life at the age of 18. However, a recent youth defender law called Senate Bill 261 enables Justin to go before the parole board just after his 25th year of incarceration. November will mark his 13th year of incarceration. Justin is one of those rare individuals who were given a commutation. On November 21st, 2018, Governor Jerry Brown commuted Justin Fenton to 15 years of life, which allowed him to go before the parole board just a few months ago. I'll leave the rest of the story for Justin to tell. He's been on his transformational journey since early in his incarceration in the Los Angeles County Jail. While I was incarcerated with, with him, I remember thinking, this guy doesn't need to be in prison no more. Wherever he goes, he's going to add value to the world. He's one of the most authentic young men but I know. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, Justin, would you be willing to take us back and tell us how it all started for you? Yeah, so I was born in South Korea, and I came to America when I was two. So when my family came, they came to America for better future, better dreams, better opportunity for me. And I'm the only child. I still had my mom. My dad and my grandma had told my family, my father, go to America. There's better opportunity for you. So my father submissively listened to my grandma, and we came to Southern California. And and growing up, as the only child, I remember being put at uh, a neighbor's house while my parents worked for an after-school daycare program. So we started in the Van Nuys in the San Fernando Valley. Uh-huh. And then later on, we moved to Koreatown in Los Angeles. Okay. And then from there on, we moved to Orange County. So growing up, I remember my parents always putting me in after-school programs or in a daycare or at a neighbor's house. And they were very hard workers. My mom initially worked at a burger joint, at a video store, and another management position in a, as a clerk. So she held down three jobs. She was real busy uh, trying to take care of the family. 
and my dad, he he was working part time, and he was trying to start his own company, his own business. And he was a designer. He studied in fashion and arts in Korea. So they were very hard workers. Why did your parents choose to to uh, come to the United States? So, yeah, obviously they wanted a, a better life, not just for me, but for them as well. So there's better opportunities as far as college, better education, better job choices. So they're thinking about all that when they moved over here. Did they ever have any other children? you have any brothers and sisters? No, I was the only child. And I know they tried, and through health reasons, they weren't able to. So, yeah, I was the only child. And and I was very blessed to have two parents. But honestly, like, they were there, but they weren't. Right. And ever since I can remember, they are always at work. And even when my... My aunts, my cousins moved out here from Korea. I would be dropped off over there early in the morning, go to school with them. And my parents would pick me up late at night, around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And when I turned 10, that's when I was left home alone. And at that time, we were living in Orange County. And my parents wouldn't come home until 9 or 10 o'clock. And at that time, I used to watch a lot of scary movies. And right. After watching the movie, what got you into scary movies? My parents were watching it. It's one of those. It was called Saturday Night Mysteries, right? And I would watch along with them. And it's about this ghost and that Korean ghost. Uh, it always just stuck with me, the vision of it. And I would be afraid to go home after school around three o'clock. Uh, I'll play in front of my house, and then when it gets dark, I'll, I was scared to go in. And I would sit in front of the porch until my parents came back from work late at night. And that's how it was growing up for me. It wasn't as bad when I lived in Orange County uh, because a lot of my friends live in the same apartment complex. So I would hang out with them or go to their house and eat uh, or do homework over there and listen to music. But ever since I moved to Fontana, which is uh, about an hour away from Orange County, that's when I began to really resent my parents. And drive was a lot longer, too. So they would drive, they would get up earlier, about an hour early to go to work. And then when they come back, about an hour later. So by the time they came back home, I was already asleep. And then I would see them again next morning. Uh, how are you? Did you eat? Go to school? And that was that. And definitely, I wanted them around. And when I lived in Orange County, I saw how the moms were at least home, helping my friends with their homework. I wanted that. And I asked my mom, could you help me with this homework, or can you help me with this project? She would always tell me, go to your dad. And then my dad would tell me, I'm too tired or busy right now. Uh, I don't really understand English, too. So I felt, I felt like they were dismissive. But right. I know... They they love me a lot because they hired after school tutors for me, put me in after school programs. So I had like personal tutors come to my house and spend time with me. But even then, it just felt empty. There there was a great sense of loneliness that I really longed for my parents to be there, just to be there. And I know they were there, but they weren't. So definitely, especially when I moved to Fontana, everything was far away and I couldn't get around. I couldn't just bike to a liquor store or go to Burger King or McDonald's to buy some fries. 
also um, felt like my parents didn't care about me. I felt like they just left me alone. I'm stuck by myself. I felt like even though we had a big house now, we had everything to eat, the fridge was full, but I felt like I was left by myself to survive. How am I going to get by in school? You know, people were making fun of me. I didn't have that much friends. So I felt like I was literally all alone, all alone at home. And when my parents didn't come back until late at night, uh, I don't want anything to do with them. So especially ever since I moved to Fontana, uh, everything was far away. So I couldn't just go to the liquor store, bike somewhere, or go to my friend's house. So for the most part, I, I was stuck home alone. And my way of passing time was being on the computer, being on the internet, playing games, listening to music, chatting. So that's what I look forward to. Um, after school, I would come back home just to see who was online or uh, who, who I could play games with. And I felt a lot of loneliness and uh, a sense of abandonment. So a lot of my time, you know, I would go through MySpace. Uh, that was in 2006, so way before Facebook. Or Facebook had just come out. And I would see my friends' pages, and I would see them having fun, or pictures of them uh, hanging out. And I felt like, and this, this, was, this is what I was telling myself, that uh, my parents moved far away, and I'm, I'm far away from all my friends, and they robbed me of my childhood. So these are the things I was telling myself. My, my family, they owe me now. You know, I felt resentful towards them. They took away my childhood. And I want to have fun, too. And a lot of that started building up. And even, like, when I was back in Orange County, and I would hang out with my friends, go to their house, their, at least their mom was always home. And they were helping them with their homework, or, or they were just there. And... Even when I asked my parents or asked my mom, can you help me with my homework? Or can you help me with this? She would always tell me, go to your dad, or I don't understand this. And I felt dismissive. I felt like either they're too tired or they're too busy for me. So I began holding all that in, all that anger, all that hurt, the feeling of neglect. So it was easy for me to go to the people that embraced me. So even prior to joining a gang, I was hanging around with guys that's already been involved in that lifestyle, smoking marijuana, drinking, and they're popular, even at school. They're popular. The girls were around them, and that was what I wanted at the time. And that's what I gravitated towards. So definitely just going through that, all those emotions, um, I didn't understand it at the time, but it was rewarding. When these guys embraced me, uh, Justin, let's, let's smoke, let's drink. I was 15, and at first I was curious, but as I started hanging out with, with these guys, I felt a sense of belonging, and it gradually became more and more. So even even before that, when I was going to church in Orange County, the popular kids, you know, they were smoking cigarettes behind the church building, and... And some of the guys, the older guys, they would box with each other or, or go body shots. And it was cool. Everybody was hanging out. and It looked tough. It looked dangerous. They seemed to have a sense of respect. 
and that's something I never felt like I had going up. And and me and my friends, we would watch, you know, them box each other, and some of the older guys would challenge me, fight your friends, or go body shots with your friends. I didn't want to, but at the same time, I didn't want to seem like I'm backing down. So I would do it, and I would win. And we end up getting bruised up, cut up, and that was like a, a battle scar. And man, this this is what I got. And especially when I boxed the older guys, those guys were a lot stronger, a lot faster. But I felt proud. I felt like I didn't back down. I went in, I got hurt, but I started getting a sense of respect for my peers my age and even some of the older guys. And one of the guys I remember, his name was James, and he he had a, a look of pride. Uh, and he told everybody that I'm his little cousin. And it felt good, you know, that he embraced me. But, I mean, at the same time, like, later on, uh, he treated me bad. Uh, when I went with my friends, uh, he embarrassed me in front of everybody. I hit my hat off my head, and uh, just started making fun of me. But at the same time, he would tell everybody, man, I'm his little cousin. So it felt good. But looking back at it now, man, I was dysfunctional. Um, <laughs> yeah. Clearly, he didn't, he didn't want me around. You know, and I felt I felt bad, and I don't know how to internalize those feelings, but I want to be around them as well. I wanted that status. So what what did you start hanging out with them? So going to church, um, I I started going to church in Orange County, uh, thirteen, fourteen years old, and around when I was fifteen, uh, that's when. Uh, I saw the high school kids, and I would try to hang out with them. But again, like they would treat me bad. They would push me away. Sometimes they would ditch me, and I would have to find my way back to to where they are, or find my other group of friends. It started at church, so we're obviously underage. Uh, we're fifteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, and my peers they're smoking tobacco, cigarettes. And not only that, we would go around the parking lots and we would take the car emblems, like the Toyota signs, the Honda Accord signs, and we would take that. We would steal it and we would stitch it onto our backpack. So that's the first time I could think when I started stealing. And then later on, it became easy. So I would start going to Target or Kohl's and start taking little things like earrings or toothpaste. And then later on, I would take clothes, put in my backpack right after school. And it became easier. And even though I didn't need to steal, uh, my family were financially well off. I felt like I was supporting myself now and and it was easy. In my mind, I was making my own ends meet. Looking back on all that now, Justin, what are your thoughts about, you know, that early beginning when you first start hanging out with these types of the people who are committing crimes, people who are gangbanging? I mean, what do you, what do you, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, you know, you were making choices back then to walk down that path. How do you feel about yeah. those choices today? What could you have done different? Man, definitely, I would ask for help. But back then, I felt like that was part of life. That was normal. People being mean to me, bullying, that was all normal. I felt like they did that because 
that's how kids are. That's how people are. You got to be tough. So, yeah, it was wrong. But at, at that time, I normalized everything, especially in the culture and the neighborhood that I was growing up in. That's what the guys were doing. So if you're going to do it, I could do it too, maybe even better. And thinking about Did that, it's, it's like, man, um, I needed a lot of help. And right. I should have communicated to not only my parents, but to the people around me at church, uh, my teachers, my tutors that something's not right. Right. You know, but back but back then it was, uh, everything was just normal. Even when I was living in Fontana, I would go back down on Friday nights and I would sleep over at my friend's house and then my mom would pick me up again on Sunday nights. And, you know, a lot of my friends smoked tobacco, cigarettes, and, and I knew my clothes smelled like that too. And I would spray cologne to match the smell. Uh, I knew they knew, and even when they would sleep over at my house, we would sneak out into the backyard or way out in the in the corner of the street and we would smoke. So they knew, and I think at that time, my dad seemed indifferent. He was always busy working, but my mom, she had an idea. And later on, after a year or two living in Fontana, I began to build up more resentment against them, and now I felt like now they owed me. You know, my childhood has been taken away. Now, this is, I need to have fun. So, I will stay out later, come back home 9, 10 o'clock, sometimes 11 at night. And and they knew, like, what were you doing? They would ask me. But every time they would ask me, I would be very disrespectful. And I would yell at them, especially my dad. You know, he would ask me, you know, why are you out there so late? And that was a trigger for me. And I would be very disrespectful and yell on top of my lungs. Like, why? Like, why do you care all of a sudden? Just leave me alone. And when I told him, I don't even care anymore, that was a trigger for my dad. And he said, what do you mean you don't care? And and then we would be in a, a, a big argument, just yelling at each other in the top of my lungs. And that's how it was in my household. There was a lot of tension. And... When I did join a gang, I tried to hide everything from my parents. I had gotten tattoos, and every time my parents were home, I would put on a shirt. And, and they had heard from another uh, friend's mom that I had probably gone into a gang. And there was one time that he actually sat me down to talk to me. Are you in a gang? And I denied everything. I said, no, we're just a group of friends hanging out. Uh, we have parties. We we have parties at people's houses, and that's what we do. We're just hanging out, a bunch of normal high school kids, and they believe me. They left me alone after that. So when you talk about you felt that they owed you, what did you feel like that they owed you? I felt like they owed me. My childhood, because I felt like after school, during the week, it was so boring. I was stuck home alone. And I remember when I lived in Orange County, uh, we would hang out every day after school. We would walk to the mall, go to the park, hang out at the friend's house. So when I'm living in Fontana and I see my friends having fun on MySpace, looking at the pictures, I felt like I was missing out. I felt like my, my junior high years were being robbed. 
And that's what I was telling myself. I know it doesn't make sense now, but that's how I justified uh, being rebellious. Now, now that I'm out in Fontana, I want to create my own group of friends. I want to go out having fun with these guys up here. I want to hang out late. And it makes sense. Some of my friends in Orange County, they're having their permits, their license to drive. Some of them had cars already at 16, 17. And I had just gotten my permit, but my mom wouldn't let me drive, not by myself. So I would sneak her car out late at night and go driving with my friends and bring it back early in the morning. And my mom would confront me, what are you doing? Why are you taking out the car? I asked my friend, what should I tell her? And he told me, just tell her you're stressed out and you needed some fresh air. It made sense to me. So all those negative influences, I was using that as an excuse to be rebellious towards my parents. Right. When you say you joined a gang, what gang did you join? It was called the Korean Boys. Right. And they originated out of the San Gabriel Valley. And I was originally from Orange County. But when I moved to Fontana, uh, there was a guy from the valley that moved out there. He went to my high school, and that's how I got acquainted with him and the gang. So even prior to joining a gang, there's a lot of gangs around the neighborhood. So I hear a lot about different gangs. Uh, but this particular gang, I, I've seen them. I've, I've seen them hit somebody up. Um, the other gang ranked out, meaning they backed down. And to me, that was a sense of power. They looked at it so cool, something like you see in a movie. So I was committed to joining that game. And I was going to do whatever it took to, to gain respect. And even when I got jumped in, they told me, if you want respect, don't fight back. And I didn't. I took the beating. I didn't fight back. I got jumped for about a minute and a half. My teeth was knocked out. And... I felt proud. I felt like I finally belonged. And they told me, welcome, welcome to the family. You're one of us now. And now that I was finally from a gang, I felt like I had my identity. I wasn't Justin from Fontana or Justin from the Boonies. You know, I was Justin from this gang. They told me, uh, we're going to call you Whispers. Because I had my teeth knocked out. So I told him, no, I, I didn't like that name. And all right, we're going to call you Silent. So ever since I was given that name, I felt like I, I really belonged. I had a sense of identity. And I was going to represent to the fullest. I got their tattoos on me. And I was going to be about this for life. At the time, it meant everything. Because people around my age weren't hanging out late having fun, they weren't going to bars, and I felt exclusive because I wasn't getting carded, I was hanging out with the older guys, I have status, you know, these guys are somebody, these guys look like the type of guys you see in a movie, they had so much confidence, they had the girls, and that was everything, and and I'm not trying to glorify it now, but it felt like it was my birthday every day, the sense of belonging and the respect that I had. It's, it's horrible. I, I feel disgusted that I was willing to sacrifice myself, sacrifice my family, my whole future for this game, all because it felt good, all because I felt I belonged. And I wish I could have communicated more to my parents how I was feeling at that time, that I really need you guys. I really need help. 
and just seemed indifferent. And having a conversation with my parents or with my mom today, my mom would tell me, we really loved you. We loved you so much. And all this time, I told myself that they didn't. You know, and I realized now they worked so hard because they wanted to care for me, provide a better future for me. And when I think about how I put my loyalty towards my gangs rather than my family, I threw all my future away. I, I brought them so much pain. Not only that, I've, I've devastated my community. I've hurt so many people. And thinking about that, I, I truly am sorry. I, I am disgusted with myself. And I wish I could undo it. I wish I could go back. But I can't. So, Justin, uh, I appreciate you sharing the story, man. It's courageous of you. It's empowering. Thank you. There's a lot of people listening who uh, have loved ones who are incarcerated, and they'd love to hear their loved ones share what you're sharing. You know, everybody in there has a story. That's what it's about, getting to the root of the story, getting to how it all started. So now we're coming to this part of the interview where we're talking about, you know, how did your criminality progress? How did you go from the 15-year-old to how old were you when you committed your crime? I was 16 years old. Okay, so a year later. So from that year, from 15 to 16, how was your criminality progressing in a way where you could become the person who could commit a crime resulting in 82 years to life? So even before joining a gang, uh, I normalized a lot of the behaviors, fighting, stealing, even hitting other people up, even though at that time I wasn't from a gang. But I felt like it took a lot of courage to step up to somebody with my group of friends. And I, I wanted to build my status. So even before joining a gang, uh, I hung out with a lot of guys in Fontana that were very criminal-minded. And this criminal behavior was fighting, fighting at school, getting suspended. But all that was influenced towards the, the gangster culture. You know, what we hear in the movies or listening to the rap music like Tupac and Biggie, uh, hit them up. So we glorified that. So if you saw somebody that's mad-dogging us, we were quick to challenge them. What you looking at? What's up? And simply fight. And I did get suspended for that. And even bringing alcohol to school, this is what we do. We drink, we smoke, and this is how we do it in the West Coast. And all that influenced me. And and seeing a lot of the guys, they were doing the same thing, ditching school, stealing, um, getting locked up for run, running away. I had a friend, he got locked up for a month, went to juvie, and when he came back out, I thought he was the man. You know, none of my friends been locked up before. So hanging out with these group of guys in Fontana, I'm already building my status. And they don't know what I'm doing up here, my friends in Orange County, but I wanted to build my status even though it was an hour away. And it even came to the point where we're drinking at a park, and I had an idea. Let's go, let's go cruise around. You know, but we didn't have a car. I saw a guy parked in the, in the side of the park, and I, I told my friend, Let's go, let's go jack him. Let's go take his car. And this was way before I joined the gang, a year before I joined the gang. And we beat him up, we took his car, and we drove around. And I felt like I had courage now. I have status. So when I finally did join the gang, I felt like 
I had already proved a lot more worth to be in the gang at that time. Um, there was a lot of emptiness I did feel, and I felt like being part of a gang filled that void. So now that I'm finally somebody of status, now that I'm a, a gang member, I felt like all the hurt that I experienced from my parents being dismissive, all the bullying that I felt, I felt justified now that I could hurt other gang members because I knew what I signed up for when I joined the gang. I knew the possibilities of getting jumped, getting hit up, getting jacked, getting shot. So any gang member knows when they join a gang, that's the possibility, even prison. But in my mind at the time, that was never an option for me. None of my friends went to prison except for that one friend that went to juvenile hall. Now that I'm, I'm in a gang, I felt like all those guys that used to bully me, now I could bully them. I could, I could humiliate them. So it was vengeful. It was retaliatory. I wanted to get them, make them feel how I felt. If I saw a rival gang member, I took any opportunity that I had to not only prove to myself or to the gang, but to the rest of the gangs in that neighborhood that I'm somebody now. This is who I am. And, and the older guys would tell me, it's your time to shine, you know, make some noise in the streets. And I took all that into consideration. So when I saw somebody dressed in a certain way or looked at me differently, looked at me, mad dog me, I would hit them up, where are you from? I would let them know who I am, where I'm from. And that was an opportunity for me to, to fight, to keep hurting other people. And especially when I went back down to Orange County, the guys that used to bully me, I used to, I wanted to bring hell to them. I would bring my friends from Fontana, my friends from San Gabriel Valley to Orange County to go gangbang on them. So a lot of, a lot of the crimes that uh, happened was retaliatory. So those are the kind of things that you were up to before committing your life crime? Yeah, and, and a lot of it, it is similar because we would drive around uh, where other gang members hang out at, whether it's a coffee shop, pool hall, at a karaoke bar. And there's always a group of guys standing outside. And some some are gang members, some aren't. So that's what we did. We drove around and we looked for other rival gang members. And a lot of times we did fight. I got stabbed before. I stabbed somebody. And those are the type of behavior that I was involved with. I was charged with first-degree murder and first-degree attempted murder, shooting at an occupied vehicle, and gang enhancement. And you were 16 years old? I was 16 years old. So up until that time, I held a lot of resentment against these rival gang members. A lot of my friends had run in with these rivals. And two months before my life crime, my friend Tim, uh, he got stabbed by the watching gang. He got stabbed in his arm, got cut up. And I felt like they disrespected not only my homeboy, but he disrespected me. He disrespected the gang. So I had a, a big resentment, big hatred towards the watching gang. And, and it was routine for us. Because Daniel, that's my co-defendant, my crime partner, and, and Lenora, 
we all lived in Fontana at that time. And every every day during the summer, we went down to Roman Heights in the San Gabriel Valley to to hang out at a pool hall. That's where we hung out at. We met, we smoked marijuana, and decided what we we're gonna do that day or that night. Uh, so it was in the summer of August, August uh, 16, 2006. And me, Daniel, and Nora, we went down to Roman Heights, and we met up with the rest of the fellas. And we smoked marijuana, and one of the older guys heard that there was going to be a party, a college party, from one of his friends. So we all decided to go. Uh, we went there, probably about 10 people, 10 of us from the gang. My intent that night was to talk to girls, dance, have fun. So we arrived at the party around 10.30, close to 11. And we went to the back, by the backyard, by the pool, and we drank a couple shots of vodka. We drank some more beer, and we were already loaded. We were messed up, we were high, we were drunk, and we were talking to some girls. And a few minutes later, one of my friends, Sam, he came to the backyard saying that Joaquin had come to the party. And as soon as I heard that, I started pumping my friends up. F these guys. Let's get them fools. Let's blast them. And I knew at that time, I could have just told my friends, let's just kick back and let's enjoy the party. But I felt like this was my first run in with the watching game and I wanted to prove to myself I might not get another chance to get them. So after that encounter, we went to the front of the house with the rest of the game. And two older guys had already hit them up, confronted them. Where you, where you from? And Adam, he was one of the older guys from the gang. He asked us who wants to handle it, and I knew exactly what he meant. And he had given the gun to me a couple, couple months prior to the, to the life crime. It was a three fifty seven revolver, and we kept the gun in the car. And whenever. Uh, we saw rival gang members. I know. I know exactly what to do. So, I I saw them leave. They did the right thing. They hurried up and left. There's five of them. I didn't see their faces, but they hurried up and left. And me, Daniel, Nora, we got in Daniel's car and we followed them. For a minute, we had lost them. Um, they turned into a dirt, dark corner. Uh, in a small street, and they made a U-turn, came back out, and we, we saw the car. So we were following the car for about five minutes, and the car finally went onto the freeway. And as soon as they went onto the freeway, a couple minutes later, uh, Daniel, he was the driver, he caught up to them, pulled next to them, and he rolled, I rolled down the window. And as soon as I did, I pulled out my arm with the gun, and I fired four shots. I unloaded the gun as much as I could, and that was our enemy. I wanted to get them. And as soon as I fired the shots, I, in my mind, I thought the car was going to blow up or something, and that we were going to go out in a blaze of glory. Uh, but the car slowed down, it stopped, and 
is it pulled over. And after the shooting, I called back at him and said, we got them, we got our enemies. And he told us to just kick back for the night and we'll talk about it in the morning. So at that time, I, I finally felt like we got our enemies. We're, we're making our name known. We're making noise in the streets. And, and the next day, we all met up at my parents were at work. So about seven, eight gang members, guys from my gang, we met up at my house. And, and that day, it was August 17th. And we, uh, we cleaned down the car for any gun residue. And we tried to get rid of the evidence. Um, I still had the gun in my in my house. I kept it in my room, and I held on to it because I want to use it for more crimes. And uh, over here, we're trying to cover up a murder, a gang-related shooting, but not realizing that the victim, Eric Wayne and Kevin Yao, they were shot. Eric Wayne was shot in the head, and Kevin Yao was shot in the neck, in the chin area. And during the the whole time, we're trying to get rid of the, the evidence, washing down the car. Eric and Calvin, they were in the hospital fighting to live. And I can only imagine what their families were going through. Their families were flying out from China to, to see them. They're probably crying out to God to save their, save their kids' lives. And they're going through all that suffering. And I didn't find out until later, but Eric Quang had died two days later, which was August 19th. And it was very fortunate that Kevin Yao, uh, he was shot in the chin, the neck area, and he survived. And Kevin Yao was the driver. And I was aiming at the driver, and, and I don't know how he survived. And I remember him coming to court to testify against us. I had never seen him before. He had never seen me. He stated to the court that we had never seen each other. But I remember him talking with a slur. He couldn't pronounce certain letters well, and he seemed so traumatized. And I realized, man, I, I really messed him up. And of course, I couldn't really understand the impact at that time. When I was going to trial, I, I had just turned 17 years old. And in my mind, the whole time, I thought they're my enemies. These guys are rival gang members. But they testified that they weren't even gang members. And thinking about that today, no one deserves to die. No one deserves to get shot. And I remember an old, older gentleman and a, a young lady sitting in the in the background in the audience. And I wondered if if that was Eric's father, Eric's sister. I've traumatized them. I've I've stolen a life. I've taken a life. And now they had to rebuild their whole life. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. 
You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. 